shift into an attitude of gratitude. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Millionaire Woman Show. We bring guests from around the world to help inspire you, motivate you, and educate you on how to live life rich from the inside out using principles of leadership, business, and human potential. Today, I am very excited. It is a launch day of a very special book that I'm going to show you that has hit the shelves. It's not pre-released anymore. It's officially released today. And I am honored to be able to share with you our guest, Raw Goddess. She's the founder and CEO of the entrepreneurial training company, Move the Crowd. Raw helps people reimagine work as a vehicle for creative expression, financial freedom, and making positive change in our communities and the world. So many of us struggle with fear and self-doubt, with always having to overcompensate due to the imposter syndrome. With concerns about how to make money while pursuing our passion, and with navigating the daily stress and anxiety of trying to do it all. The Calling offers a step-by-step -step roadmap for defining goals and establishing practices in both business and personal life that are always in alignment with our most deepest held values, our unique talents, and the difference we want to make in the world. Raw has six-step true paid good process, which includes recognizing it always begins with awareness. If you can't see it, then you can't do anything about it. Accepting, embracing and taking responsibility for yourself, your life, and the things that you want or need to be changed. Forgiving yourself and others, redefining and reimagining your new future. Aligning through right actions and consistent with your beliefs. Celebrate, acknowledge your efforts, pay attention to and affirm your progress. With special practices and assignments drawn from the tools, concepts, stories with each chapter, Raw shows how to put each concept into action, create a life and profession we desire, and break free from concerns that hold us back from pursuing our passion and purpose. And the forward is written by her friend, I know, Gabrielle Bernstein. So please welcome to the show, Raw Goddess. Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you so much, Deborah, for having me. And, and shout out to all my millionaire women out there. It's so great to be with you all today and, and in this conversation. Oh, thank you. So I have to tell you, I was sharing with Raw before we came online, is when I received this book, I dove in. I couldn't get enough of it. I was flipping through and showing her my highlights throughout the book. I write in the columns. <laughs> and there's so many more things. And, you know, there's worksheets and everything that I need to go back to and continue to work on. It's going to be one of my new uh, professional development and uh, entrepreneurial Bibles to have it must, it's one of those must be on the shelves. So Rock, tell, tell us what you're experiencing today. Today is launch day of this book that you've been birthing and calling, unleashing your purpose, three fundamental shifts. Stay true, get paid, and do good. Wow. So, I, you know, we were, we were joking a little bit earlier that, you know, it's one of those things, and, and I think we all have had this experience where you've worked on something and, you know, it's been a lot of kind of toiling in the dark and, <laughs> and a lot of not knowing how it's going to turn out and, um, and a lot of letting go and a lot of deep breathing. You all know what I'm talking about. And, um, and then, you know, and then finally the day comes and the baby, the baby is shown to the world and, Today has been a really joyful day. And I, you know, when I made the conscious decision, Deborah, I was like, you know, 
no matter what gets done, doesn't get done, because you all know there are a million details always up until the very, very end, and some things fall through. And um, But my commitment today was to choose joy, to bring this into the world with joy. And so, you know, one of the first things I did this morning, a number of kind of calls and conversations, which were wonderful. And then went uh, to the wing and had cupcakes and champagne <laughs> with a, you know, a, a slew of beautiful entrepreneurial women and signed books and heard their stories about what they were building, which for me is what this is all about. And just being eye to eye, heart to heart with them and their aspirations. And then from there, we went actually to a Barnes and Noble and had the opportunity to sign the books and thank them for carrying the books. And um, and that was just a beautiful exchange. You know, first of all, they were shocked, <laughs> you know, which was lovely. And second of all, they thanked me, you know, for taking the time to come in. Um, but it was all really, really wonderful and joyful. And, um, and the energy has just been, you know, I, I believe it started yesterday with Dr. Martin Luther King Day, you know, yeah. which has always been a sacred day for me and a special day for me. I launched my business, you know, nine years ago on MLK day. And so, so is that why you had this book launch on this day? You know, it serendipitously worked out. I mean, you know, I was certainly like, you know, lobbying, but you never know because it's, you know, so many things go into ultimately bringing a book into the world. Um, And I, and I do just want to say shout out St. Martin's press and to just say it was been, it's been such a joy truly to work with them in bringing this into the world. But you, you know, you don't ever know, but this day and and this time of year for me is always about the dream. And it's always about um, our willingness to answer, our willingness to follow the breadcrumbs that really are the deepest longings and urgings of our soul. And so I feel like um, our example of Dr. King is, is you know, what's possible for us, what's possible for our world when people say yes. You know, he is one in many incredible examples. And, um, and for me, like right there at the top of the list. So to ride that energy from yesterday into today for me was a blessing. Absolutely. And we all have that dream. And yeah. he put out such a great vision for us to really pay attention to that calling, that dream that's calling toward us. So it is a great honor for me to share in this special day with you. And, uh, dive into asking you some questions to make it even more memorable. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Let's go for it. (laughs) All right. So many of our listeners and viewers, you know, they're looking for their purpose. They know they're made for more. They can feel it. There's that, you know, nudging, if you will. Can you explain what a calling is and what happens if we don't listen to it? Yeah, it is that nudging, that tugging, that uh, haunting dare I say, you know, for better, for worse, it is the thing that does not leave us alone, you know, and, and it will not be satisfied. And truthfully, we won't be satisfied until it's answered. It is the thing that I, I, I describe that, you know, no one else can do but you. And, and, and a lot of times I get this question, Deborah, you know, do I have a calling or is it just like the special people or the fabulous people or the famous people? And I'm like, hmm. Every single one of us has it. Every single one of us has it. And it really is our opportunity and dare I say our responsibility to listen and to discover what it is so that we can answer. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens if we don't, you ask, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I know <laughs> that I've read different books that, you know, that people let their dreams die because they didn't listen or they listened to the doubters and what happens to them yeah it's so interesting there's a, a incredible book by Bronnie Ware and and I believe Bronnie worked in hospice I think a hospice nurse but it was the top five regrets of the dying and the number one regret is that people did not have the courage to live their life mm. on their terms that they allowed the pressure or the expectations or the good opinion of others to rule their day. And when you consider that that's the number one concern, and, you know, and this is coming from someone who um, has the sacred you know, calling to help people cross over 
um, it should tell us that it's important, you know, that it is important that we do listen. Um, and, and I, you know, I always like to say the universe is gangster. You know, sometimes we think, oh, you know, spirituality, la, 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 warm and fuzzy, yeah. butterflies and sunshine. Um, but the truth is that that nugging and that, tug, that tugging and that tapping on the shoulder can become more forceful if we don't listen and can manifest itself in a lot of ways that ultimately um, prevent us from being able to pay attention to anything else but that. Yeah. You know, so I think for some of us who've had to navigate through health issues or some of us who've had to navigate through the death of a loved one or another kind of traumatic event or some kind of extreme. And, and also we see the positive extremes as well. Right. So it doesn't always come as gloom and doom. Um, but those things that take us way off of the path or the plan or the course that was the safe route or the comfortable route or the route that we've known. Um, so those tuggings, those urgings, those nudgings get stronger. Um, and then for others of us, let's say for whatever reason, we're able to be crafty enough to ignore it or by step it or work around it. There's always this lack of fulfillment mm. and lack of sort of true happiness. You know, life might be okay, you know, but there's still something missing and we know there's something missing you know, and it's just okay. It's not great. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. you know, um, and so I think that, you know, if we don't answer, either we get stopped in our tracks, which was my situation, or, um, or we, we become less than we could have, you know, we settle for less than we could have. And, and what that means is that ultimately the heart and the spirit and the soul never get quite fulfilled. Yeah. I think there's part of you that actually dies or yes. goes into a hiding or silence. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. I definitely believe that, that the soul goes dormant, yeah. you know, if it, if it isn't engaged and exercised mm -hmm. in our expression. So what shifted for you when you started to pursue your deepest calling and how did you know you were on the right track? So uh, I have all of the compassion in the world for my reluctant answerers out there or my reluctant leaders out there, dare I say, because I believe that we all are leaders, right? Um, because I came to mind kicking and screaming literally. And it, it, um, it required a situation where I ultimately was shot at gunpoint, in point blank range. And, um, and I had been running and hiding and dodging and the universe had been calling and nudging and tugging. And, um, and that was what ultimately forced me to face my path. And, and it was terrifying, not just the experience of being shot at, which of course, as you all can imagine, is terrifying. And I had a very outer body, otherworldly experience, which mm -hmm. has enabled me to still be here. Um, thank, you know, thank God. Um, but what was also terrifying was even though I could see what, you know, the universe, spirit, source, love, however we define it, wanted me to see, I had no idea how to get there. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, Deborah, that stops so many people. So it's like, even if they're willing to give themselves permission to dream and imagine, what stops them in the pursuit is like, well, I don't know all of the steps that are gonna get me from where I am to where I'm going. And I firmly believe, and this is something that I teach, is that you don't need to know all the steps. Mm -hmm. Can you take the first step? Because if you can take the first step, it's, you know, it's just like breadcrumbs. Oh, then the next step appears. Oh, then the next step appears. Oh, that you feel me. And, and, and then the next thing you know, you're moving and you're pursuing. Um, and, and you're on, and you're on the path and you're on the journey. Yeah. And that's where we start to see the progress and we're building momentum. But what I find is we get so caught up in the how that we yeah. don't take the first step. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So in the book, you talk about how people need to be aware of their internal dialogue and how that influences that creation and action and how we underestimate our mindsets. We often hear about ownership and I've often, you know, I, I teach it as well about taking a hundred percent ownership and I'll say own it. Right. Yeah. Um, for our actions and results, those consequences. 
but we don't always hear about taking responsibility for what you believe about yourself and accepting yourself. So can you talk to us about how your beliefs about yourself impact the results that you're getting? Yeah, a lot of us don't even realize what we believe. We don't even know what we believe about ourselves. And so, you know, even to take the time in this space to ask ourselves, you know, wow, what is it I'm believing? And what is it that I'm acting from? You know, what is my relationship with myself? And is it the relationship that I want? You know, we think about it when we think about, you know, sort of externally, do I have the relationship I want with my boss? Do I have the relationship I want with my husband? <laughs> right? With my children. You know, we go there a lot, but we don't, in my experience, often ask, like, well, who am I to me? And why is what I believe about myself important? It governs, what we believe about ourselves. governs every decision we make about what we're capable of or not capable of, about what we deserve or what we don't deserve, about what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. And whether it's, you know, sort of blaring loudly in our face or whether it's kind of, you know, I call it white noise in the background, these decisions and these conversations exist. And our ability to access a life that really is built on our own terms and a life that really is in alignment with what feels true for us begins with exploring what it is that we believe and most importantly, what it is that we believe about ourselves. So when you work with individuals, I know you were working with one individual in the book, I'd have to find the visualization process. Uh, and you were getting her uh, to visualize herself in a different space and time. And what would that look like to her? But it came down to some unworthiness yeah. of yeah. what she believed for herself. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about maybe a story that you have from working with someone? That journey. Yeah. So, so you're referring to Anna G in the book. Shout out to Anna G. Um, and Anna was a brilliant, you know, we, and she still is just a brilliant creative producer and visionary, someone who is really passionate about the arts, someone who is really passionate about making a difference in the lives of people, all people, but a really particular commitment to young people. And, you know, and it really stemmed from her own experience of being a young girl and being exposed to arts and power of creativity. Um, and Anna just, you know, as many phenomenal members of our not-for-profit community, whether they're working in the arts or whether they're working in other kinds of issues that we know, you know, plague our society, so overworked and underpaid, you know, so overworked and under-resourced and many of them work miracles you know and we consider what they have to work with and then what they ultimately create in the world um, it really is magic you know um, but it comes at a cost often because there is this sacrifice and and you know within the context of the work with Anna what she was able to see is like she didn't even believe that more was possible. Like not even, you know, not even on the radar, not even considered to ask for it, not even considered to think about it. And worthiness is often at the heart of it. This is why the, what is your relationship to you and what is it that you believe about you is so important because when many of us get to the bottom of that and kind of unravel all those conversations, on some level, there is this question about whether or not we're worthy of the things that we want and whether or not we even think we have a right to want them. Forget pursue them, Deborah, right? But just yes. do we even have a right to want them in the first place? And so with Anna, it was like, okay, let's get clear that you are entitled to want <laughs> and not only want, you're entitled to pursue and not only pursue, you're entitled to envision and manifest and actually have. And that was the process that we went through with her when, uh, when she was expecting her new baby and wanted to find a way to still be of value to her organization while making an incredible home for her little one. Beautiful. So what is the cost of hanging on to beliefs like that? They're costly. Your limiting beliefs will drag you, dare I say, 
up and down the street. And, and what it means is that you don't ever get to experience your full potential. And I believe that every single one of us, like if you were to ask me, what's the deepest, 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 deepest yearning? You know, when we say to be loved, what we really, I believe, mean is to be seen, to be heard, and to be felt at the truest essence and purest expression of who we are. And that that ability to be seen, heard, felt, and loved is directly correlated with the degree to which we are fully expressed. Mind, body, spirit, energy, brilliance, intelligence, creativity, right? We could kind of go on and on and on. And, and our full self-expression is what is at stake. And what that really means is that our life force, because our full self-expression is our life force. It is the way that we share. It is the way that we love. It is the way that we allow ourselves to be loved. That all of that gets challenged or limited or cut short or stunted when we don't deal with the limiting beliefs and conversations that hold us back. And I, and I know that because people have said, well, what's your greatest fear? And I said, you know what? My greatest fear is not making an impact and not living to that full potential. So each day I work at doing something that's going to move the needle or impact someone in some way. Because then I know the odd time, you know, people say, oh, you get messages from people. And, I'm, and I know you <laughs> probably get messages all the time. Um, and people will say, well, that must just make you feel awesome. And it's not that the head swells, and this is what I explain to people, it just confirms that we're on the right track. Yeah. yeah. Right? And it comes with humility and, and you know that you're honoring your sacred gifts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, the head doesn't swell, the heart swells. Oh, I love that. And it, op and it opens. That. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it opens, you know, and you have more capacity to give, you know, and, and I believe contribution is a need, Deborah. Like I think every single one of us needs to give, yeah. needs to share and have that experience of, of the impact of our sharing. And that's why I love in your book, how you talk about staying true, staying true to yourself. We might as well get paid sharing those gifts that are so sacred to us that only we can provide. Yeah. But the biggest one is that you're able to do good in the world while you do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very yeah. powerful. Um, in the calling, you mentioned that there's four binding behaviors that keep us from owning our power. Can you share what they are? And is what is one thing we can do to reclaim that power? Mm, so complaining. Blaming, justifying, and avoiding are the, what I call the famous four. <laughs> Complaining, blaming, justifying, and avoiding. And anytime we are engaged in limiting behavior, one of those four is happening, in some cases more than one. <laughs> And, you know, the first thing, and I, and I asked you all to do this in the book, the first thing you got to do is, again, you got to see it. The second thing is you got to kind of go, okay, you got to own it. Like, right, this is, again, it's almost like, you know, you're doing the six-step process in the context of the binding beliefs. You got to own, like, wow, I got this complaining thing going on, or wow, I'm noticing I got this justifying thing going on, right? And then the third thing I would say is to observe all of the ways it gets in the way of your happiness. All of the ways it gets in the way of your happiness. And then the fourth thing you can do is commit to like, okay, just for one day, no complaining. And then you get to invite the people around you like, okay, so I've made a commitment. <laughs> so I, I would love Deborah. Yes, I love Deborah for the for the for me for all my parents, you know, at home, tell your little ones, like, okay, so you know, mommy or daddy's making a commitment, you know, on this, they will track you. You know, if you if you don't have your little log notebook, yes, they will track you. And the biggest way to stopping, quite frankly, any limiting behavior, any binding behavior, 
is to see it in action and to notice what it is costing you. What it is costing you in terms of love, in terms of time, in terms of energy, in terms of financial resources. Because for many of us, these behaviors are expensive, dare I say. Um, and ingrained. And deeply ingrained. And we have no idea how ingrained they are until we actually start to track them. Like a private investigator, you actually begin to track like that behavior or that habit and you would be shocked to see how often <laughs> you find yourself in the midst of it. <laughs> wow. And when it comes to blaming, they forget that there's, whenever you're pointing at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Easily, easily. Yeah. yeah. So I love that you started talking about something that many people avoid. And, you know, we see many books written about money, but I love how you address how people don't talk about it. So they don't know how to handle money. But the biggest thing that I loved in your book is how does a person's understanding of money influence their relationship with it? It's a great question. So one of the biggest challenges that I think for all of us, and I talk about this in the book, is that we have really been challenged around and intimidated around the idea of economy. Mm -hmm. You know, it is this big, scary thing with all these fancy, complex terms and these charts and graphs that go up and down. And, you know, we bring in these very smart, buttoned up individuals who give these very ominous predictions about what's going to go on. And we believe we're at the mercy of all of these forces that live outside of us. And so whether we're talking about our beliefs and perceptions about ourselves and what we're capable of, or whether we're talking about our beliefs and perceptions about our money and what's possible around our money, that until we sort of reclaim our ability to define and participate in economy, that the game will often remain the same, right? In other words, it will always be on somebody else's terms as to whether or not we eat or don't eat, or whether or not we financially thrive or don't thrive. And so the first thing is to reclaim our right to economy, which is really just about how you acquire and spend your resources. You know, that's what the GDP represents. It just represents, okay, what did the American people spend on? <laughs> if you're operating inside of a US context, and I'm sure if, you know, if you're going to Europe and, and other parts of the world, they have their terminology for it. But we have actually all the power when it comes to our economy. And it takes our ability to see it. It also takes our opportunity to simplify it, right, Deborah, which is what I think you're insinuating here. And then our opportunity to really claim it and own it. And for me, the invitation that I want to extend through the course of the book is, how does spending and making money actually become a really joyful, principled, values aligned experience mm. because if you can be in joy and if you can be in value around how you're spending and how you're earning that experience and that feeling the universe has no choice but to multiply because you're magnetizing and you're magnifying the experience you want to have Right. And so, you know, I start there with the philosophical, but then I also take you into the Nick Grit, right? <laughs> because people will go, okay, get the concept, but now how, 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 how? And I'm like, okay, let's go there. <laughs> but the big thing is to know that um, we have seen, you know, just even in the last 10 years, we think about sort of where we were in 2008 and where we are now. I mean, you know, yes, we have a lot of work to do, to still do, but my God, if we think about the fact that 10 years ago, we didn't have Uber. 10 years ago, you know what I mean? We didn't have Airbnb. I mean, it's incredible. And now these are dominant forces, you know, in our reality, you know? And so um, this idea that we can forge and create and conduct business in a way that actually creates a greater sense of well 
being for more people is something that I believe that all of us would want to participate in. And moreover, that when we have all of us participating and developing and fostering those kinds of economies, it gets better for everybody. Some of the greatest businesses have come at times when people have said that there's a recession or we're heading into this economic disaster. And that's why I loved how you approached personal economy is because no matter what the circumstances, are you going to allow media influences, you know, and people talking to influence your plans and direction when you know that you, people are still buying, they're still selling and there's still an exchange going on. And I think it really has to do. And I have noticed this in individuals recently that I was speaking with about scarcity and abundance. You could be being able to pay attention more because I think people on consciously to an extent, but they unconsciously spend, they grab the latte or they buy the extra outfit or whatever they're doing and not necessarily a need. And then they say that they don't have money to go after their dreams. Yeah. And I love how you talk about if we started paying attention to the ins and outs of where they're going, but when you're doing it with, from an abundant mindset, yeah. when you see the flow, you're just, there's a happiness, there's a joy attached to it, right? But if you're coming from a scarcity and watching the flow, there's never enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that intentionality ripples into everything, right? We're doing, right? But the example of money for me in this case is most potent because we have a tangible way to get on the court with that really, really quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the exercises in the book is, I ask people to take $100 and to say, you know, if you could consider the vision for your own economy and how you'd want to invest that $100 or spend that $100, what would you allocate it towards? As an example, to sort of give ourselves a feeling of, well, what percent would go towards supporting businesses that I really believe in, businesses that provide something really valuable to the community or the entrepreneur, the visionary who's leading that business is really inspiring. And I know that they want to make a difference or I can feel their love when I walk into their shop and see their store. And so it becomes much more relational and less transactional. And I feel like part of our giving up our power around our money is that we've been participating in economies that have been very transactional. Mm. You know, we don't know where our money's going. We click a button and, you know, mysteriously, you know, it's not even like paper money anymore, right? Really, it's a credit card or now it's your phone. It's a barcode on your phone. But this sense of exchange and the sense of intentional exchange Mm -hmm. can often be lost. And so our ability to reclaim that and our ability to invite that next level of intentionality um, gives us the opportunity to infuse what we spend with so much more good and so much more love and also how we earn, how we engage and who we want to do business with and how we decide to offer what it is that we offer to the world as well, right? That just got me thinking as an example, like crowdfunding, you know, like GoFundMe or, you know, the number of sites that are out there when someone has a cause, yeah, you know, and people are supporting it. It's no longer a transactional because often, you know, you do get something in return. Sometimes you don't knowing, just knowing that you gave something, but often because it resonates, resonates with you that you know and you feel like it's not a transaction. You've somehow started forming a relationship. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's an energy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the most uh, successful funding camp, crowdfunding campaigns carry an energy with them of excitement, of inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Of intention. And you feel it. Even if you don't know the people that you're, you know, you're supporting, in the context of giving, you feel that sense of connection by mm-hmm. virtue of their vision or their aspiration or their challenge, right? And their triumph. Yeah. 
So what is an actionable step that our listeners, our viewers can gain a better understanding of their money? I know you gave us a little bit of just keeping track and seeing where that money goes and flows um, and to break through some of those beliefs that they hold. Yeah. So I think, again, the first step is, is to be aware, to really ask yourself. And there is a series of questions I ask you in the book, mm-hmm. you know, like, what is your relationship to spending? You know, are you a, a spender? Are you a voider? Are you a hoarder? Are you, you know, so starting to really kind of identify your money persona, I call it, and sort of being able to connect and look at the way that your habits maybe create a kind of identity for you as it relates to money. And so once you kind of have that awareness, then the question might be, what is one thing you may want to change or one thing that you may want to challenge, right? So let's say, for example, you are somebody who loves to spend. Big time unconscious spender. It's like, One day your wallet is full, the next day your wallet is empty, (laughs) right? So the first- Anybody out there like that at all. (laughs) You know, and so your first opportunity may be just to watch, to just make a log. So I don't even ask you to spend differently. I say you just watch what you're doing, what you're spending, and just kind of keep a log for like two or three days. And then when you look back, you can really ask yourself, is the way that I spent my money in alignment with how I say I want to live, mm-hmm. right? Or is there some disconnect between how I'm spending and what I'm saying, right? And so this opportunity to first see and then two to challenge and then sort of go, okay, in this one area, I'm going to do things differently. So you know, I'm going to track and I'm going to ask myself this question before I spend, do I really want this? Mm-hmm. Do I really need this? Yeah. In what way is this forwarding what I want to write, what I want to have or what I want to achieve? And if the answer is, okay, you have a really clear answer for how it was, then okay, move forward. If you don't have a really clear answer, then there's a the question of like, okay, maybe you save it, you know? And maybe out of 10 transactions, every, you know, third or fourth transaction, you make the decision to save. And then you just kind of notice what happens to that little pot of money over time. You know, Mm -hmm. even if it's a dollar a day or $2 a day or $3 a day, you know, one latte, right? Shout out David Bach and the latte factor, right? Mm -hmm. If it's like one latte a day, you know, right? What happens as that accumulates over time? And so, you know, you start with those small choices. I call them those micro choices because when you can become aware of those little choices, that's where you have the potential to make those smaller shifts that can have massive impact. So do you think people should, you know, maybe have a separate account that whenever they were going to make that purchase, the money that they were going to put into that purchase, put into that account? You could totally do that. I mean, I've seen, so, you know, if you've ever done the, the millionaire mind work with Harvecker, shout out Harvecker, you know, he used to have the jars <laughs> and you'd have the six jars. Or if you do profit first, work, profit first, you know, shout out Mike Michaelitz and, you know, in that system, you have the different accounts. And so right. there are lots of ways you can do it. But I love even if you had a jar, maybe that you put on your dresser in a very prominent place and literally maybe you just put new money vision on the jar and then just you drop it in, you know, every time you catch yourself, you know, or you interrupt that pattern, you put whatever that money was. So maybe it was $20 or maybe it was $5 or maybe it was $150. It'd be an interesting exercise to see at the end of 30 days, how much money might be in that jar. Yeah. And and the other thing I was just thinking, how much maybe would have gone on credit Uh versus what you already have. Right. 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 And that's the other way that, you know, the unconscious spending occurs because to your point, if you don't like the paper money was beautiful in the sense it was physical, you could see it. You either had it in your wallet or you didn't have it in your wallet, right? And you didn't have to do a whole lot of digging or searching to figure it out. When we're now in this world of plastic or dare I say electronic and barcode and swiping where, you know, you give your credit card once and then everything else is just swiping you know, the unconscious spending can be, can be through the roof. So you got to create ways. Maybe it's an alarm on your phone. Anytime you come into, you know, a particular kind of app, there's some kind of way where you get a little notification that goes, wait a minute. (laughs) 
I just tell the retailer, no, I'm cut off right now. I will see you. And they say, just come in for a visit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, it's interesting to notice what are the things that, what are the things that precede, right? The spending in this is again, where that awareness piece becomes crucial. And I think, you know, sometimes that spending that people have is for a void that they're feeling. They want to have that hit of, you know, whether it be the new outfit, the new car, or, you know, could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling that they attach to owning something or getting something that maybe other people don't have. Yeah. So I, I know that you've encountered this as well, but I know for people listening, you know, married or in a partnership, that there can be struggle when one person has an abundant mindset and another one has the scarcity mindset. How how do you help them through um, dealing with that, especially if they're the one who who has the abundant mindset? Yeah. So the first thing is to to recognize that we can't control um, what others believe or don't believe. Mm -hmm. My experience is often the strongest communication is living by example. I do also want to say, though, when we're in the context of partnerships, it is important that we open the lines of communication around money in ways that can be safe for our partners. Yeah. You know, so if I'm coming from an abundant mindset and you feel my judgment, mm-hmm just rolling off. (laughs) You know what I mean? You feel my judgment, right? Or my disdain. Um, You're not going to want to engage with me. And moreover, you're going to dig in because your automatic reaction, unconscious reaction is going to be to defend. Anytime we feel attacked, we don't think about it. It's, you know, it's just that automatic response. And so- You know, anytime we're interested in inviting transformation in our families, in our, in our communities, in our work, we've got to make the space safe. Mm. We've got to be willing to understand how people have come to what they've come to. So we've all come to whatever our belief system is rightfully, meaning we've had experiences that have reinforced or cemented or conditioned those particular belief sets. And it isn't until we can see, and it isn't until we can own that we can change. And often it has to be safe enough in order to see, because you're asking people to be vulnerable when you ask them to look at what they believe and the impact of what they believe and what it has had on their circumstance, especially if the circumstances are less than desirable. Right. When it comes to money, it is even more tender, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and dare I say, probably, you know, it's like, what is it? Sex, money. There's like three things, right? <laughs> God, right. I think it's sex, money and God, you know, tender places for us, Yes. you know, and, and the conditioning is deep and the wounding is deep and the messaging is often very deeply entrenched. And so when we want to invite and encourage those shifts, and the people that we love, we've got to be willing, first of all, to see them fully. Two, we've got to respect that they are entitled to their own journey. And it may not happen our way, or it may not happen as fast as we think it should. And that if we're offering anything other than a loving and compassionate space, um, that it can be very difficult for them to confront, you know? Right. Um, and so, you know, now that on the other side doesn't mean that sometimes we may need to have boundaries. So listen, you can't gamble away my money and your money. Like that's not going to work, you know? So sometimes you have to, you know, be mindful of the circumstances and the situations that you're in and, you know, and create the kind of boundaries that support you in staying healthy. Because if both of you are sick that, you know, that doesn't help anybody either. If you're enabling, right. The sickness that doesn't help anybody either. Um, but again, like, like how can you continue to invite a space that encourages health and wellness for you and for them is the question that I would pose and invite you to look at. That's good. 
you know, self-awareness to really bring about that change. Um, because that can open up a conversation for people to both have, talk about their financial histories, their, their money stories, which leads me to the next question. How can a person change the narrative around their financial history and become financially empowered? So part of facing the history is also forgiving the history. Mm. And for many of us, there is a lot of shame when it comes to money, you know, for me, uh, you know, some of the deepest, most profound and life changing money work I've done has been through healing shame. You know, I want to give a shout out to Barbara Houston, whoop, 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 who is also an amazing um, wealth expert um and healer and transformer of many, many millions and millions of people around money um and you know i think sometimes we feel like oh if we go do the financial literacy course or we go read the best get out of debt book and and those tips and tools are all incredible but if we're not addressing the fundamental root cause of what keeps us stuck we, you, we only get, you all hear what I'm saying, the growth is incremental. Whereas when we get deep and we're willing to come in and heal the shame around whatever the past choices or decisions we've made have been, that creates far more capacity to actually work with the new information. And so it's a both and, not an either or in this context and conversation. But facing our financial history and our financial past, making peace with the decisions we've made, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you know, the unspeakable, as some would say. Um, and then also engaging in the new practices that encourage and invite a new reality are also important. So we make a new decision, right? A new vision, in other words, if you move through those six steps, the new vision, what you reimagine for yourself in terms of what you want to create, right? The past is in the past. Today is today. Starting today, what do you want to create? And then how do you act in concert with what you want to create? You know, so is it more education? Is it more spaces where you can tell the truth about where you've been around your money and about where you want to go? And those environments are supportive and encouraging you know so there's also something about what does each of us need to make those changes some of us it's just a structure so it could be a great book with a roadmap or it could be an online course for others of us we need community we need to look others in the eye we need to cry with others we need to hold hands with others <laughs> we need other people to call us or text us did you do the thing <laughs> you said you were going to do so that accountability that tough love we you know this is part of the beauty of coming to know yourself is to recognize what are the things you need to succeed so that you can put those things in place and ultimately begin to make those shifts and make those changes yeah and I, and I love how you talked about that, having that vulnerability and dealing with shame. Cause I think a lot of people have a lot of shame and guilt around, not just the money story, but the choices that they've made yeah. thinking that they're going to be judged or they have already been judged and others may not forgive them. And you're not responsible for how another person reacts, but you can forgive yourself Absolutely. for whatever choice it is related to money or, or what have you, that forgiveness is a huge part. And I think that people find it very hard to forgive themselves just because I think of the self-criticism yeah. we see people doing. Especially when it comes to money. Mm -hmm. Because in the context of our scarcity-based condition, we believe we can never get it back. Mm. You are your circumstance, right? There is a finality, mm -hmm. right, to those mistakes. And so our ability to really recognize with love and compassion that we do live in an abundant universe, we live in a graceful universe, and we actually live in a forgiving 
universe, which is contrary to what we've been taught, opens the door to actually our ability to start to restore that relationship with ourselves. Because any place we're not forgiving ourselves, Deborah, we're not, our, our expression is shut down there. It's not happening. So that means all of us is not in the room. All of us is not at the table. All of us is not engaging. All of us is not living. Um, and, uh, and so even our, the capacity with which we're now trying to achieve has been compromised, right? Because those aspects of ourselves are locked away in those mistakes that we've made. And so we got to free, we got to move that energy. We got to free, free that up. Um, we have to do that judgment detox. With- yes, <laughs> <it's Gabby. laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but the forgiveness piece is, is crucial. Crucial. Yeah, hundred percent. So, can you describe your eureka moment when you discovered your role in your own personal economy? Yeah, I mean, you know, there were three major, major shifts for me in in kind of moving from this place of scarcity to this place of abundance. Mm -hmm. You know, this first shift was, you know, operating from this place of default. You know, like I sort of felt like money happened to me. (laughs) Business happened to me. There was no co-creativity. There was no, you know what I mean? And that first um, moment where I went, wait a minute, like, I don't have to be at the mercy of this. I can actually start to create. And for me, it began with reading the, the seven spiritual laws of, of success and, and the law of pure potentiality. Shout out Deepak Chopra. And I started to really interrogate and sort of lean into, well, what is this law and what does it really mean? And, you know, at the heart of it was this conversation of being creative. And I was like, wow, you know, when it comes to money and when it comes to doing business, I am not creative at all. It's like people are dictating and I am doing the thing (laughs) and then wondering why I'm angry or why I feel powerless or hopeless, you know? So this first shift was being willing to say like, okay, I'm no longer willing to play by default. I'm willing to now become a conscious active shaper. The second major shift was going from resisting to creating, you know, and my long-standing activist roots had me resisting capitalism. Like, I'm not doing that. That's the man. And, you know, and it's all about domination. And what about, you know, the struggling or the, the 99%, right? As many of us know, is a very real um, concept that people are struggling with in the day-to-day reality of trying to make ends meet. And Um, And I very much had my fist in the air in reaction to capitalism. But the part that I missed was I didn't create an alternative vision. Mm. And so, you know, and I talk about this in the book that I became a victim of my own lack of vision when it came to money. And so the, the second shift for me was going from someone who was all about resisting the status quo to actually going to someone who was willing to create something different, something that aligned with my values, something that felt inspirational to me. And that was a game changer. You know, first shift, I tripled my income in like eight months. Second shift, I moved to six figures, right? And then the third shift was being able to identify and let go of my inherited notions about money. And so There's an exercise in the book where I ask you all about your money influences. So you don't just get to look at what you believe, but you actually get to look at where did you get it from? Yeah, you dig deep. (laughs) Right? Like, like, there's more to come. (laughs) Like, whose name, and like, literally, whose name is on that conversation? And, you know, for me, you know, God bless my father and God rest his soul, but I had a lot of my dad's running tapes in the background. And, didn't even realize how much of it had seeped in and how much I was operating from this idea that, you know, if you want to work, a, you know, get a dollar, you just, you got to work super, super hard, you know, and that hard, super, super hard work and very little money often went, you know, hand in hand. And I will tell you for many, many years that that was my reality. So shifting those three things, like completely cut the lights on for me. 
and this has been such a powerful conversation, Ra. I we could talk all night, <laughs> and uh, I so appreciate the knowledge you've shared. And I am grateful that you followed your calling and wrote this book and the people that you help. I have one final question for you that I often ask my guests. What does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? Mm. See, I didn't send any of those questions in advance. <laughs> it's all good. Um, for, for me, it means recognizing that the wealth begins with my connection to however it is that I define is the greater source, whatever it is that sources me, whether it's love or creativity or God or spirit, however you define it. And seeing my connection to that infinite, all-providing, all-loving, all-caring source. And when I'm connected and when I hold that image and when I feel that connection, for me, I have wealth beyond any words. And, and, and the richness for me then flows naturally and the freedom I feel and the fulfillment I feel because I know that I am enough. I know that there is enough. And I know that what I have to offer will make a difference in the things that matter most to me. And I feel like that is the greatest wealth. You're living rich from the inside out. Totally. Especially today. I can just feel your energy. <laughs> I wish we were there in person because I, I know it's radiating to everyone viewing and listening and they need to get more of you. Can you please share with us how people can stay in touch with you, how they can continue to do great work with you? Absolutely. So of course the book is out in all of the major retailers, you know, so please go out and get it. And if, you know, if you want the audiobook, the audiobook is available as well on Audible. So please, you know, just in whatever way you want to absorb the information, um, you know, the book for me was written with my love to you. And so, you, you know, if you know you're here to do more, you know, go for it. Um, also, you can reach me and, and find out more about Move the Crowd and our work at movethecrowd.me, as in move me on the web. And, you know, all of the things that we offer in the context of community are there and available to you. And you can sign up for our, our newsletter and, and just engage with us and come say hello. Um, and then also at the end of February, February 21st through the 23rd, I will be doing a live retreat weekend inspired by and in celebration of the book at Kripalu. And it's the You Are Called Retreat Weekend, which is our theme for this year. And, um, and it's the opportunity to come and really look at not just what are you wanting to achieve this year, but what is this next decade about for you? And what is it that you want to release and let go of from the last decade? <laughs> so you'll leave a little lighter and certainly really intentional about what you want to achieve and accomplish this year, and then how that lays the foundation for what you ultimately want to be and achieve over the next 10 years. And so uh, we'll send all the links for that to Deborah, and you'll have them and have access to them. And it would be my joy to be able to see you there and hug you. Um, and, um, and yeah, and for us to do this work in person together and bring your book, because we will be drawing from the book in the conversation. Thank you for sharing your gifts, um, sharing all the information from the book and really letting us have that personal connection with you. And um, it's been just such a pleasure. Oh, Deborah, thank you so much. And thank you for all of the work that you do. And for all of you who are listening out there, just thank you for all the ways you get up every day and, and pursue and make a difference and touch people and, you know, and care for our communities and our families. And, um, and I love your ambition. You know, this is, this is a phenomenal time to be leaning in and stepping up in this 2020 year. So I look forward to all that you will create. And if I can be supportive in any way, it is my joy to do so. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on The Millionaire Woman Show. And Ra, what a phenomenal guest. Please go over, subscribe on iTunes to The Millionaire Woman Show and rate and review. Send us your favorite nugget that you are taking away from today's podcast. 
because it helps inspire and share the vision of this podcast and the nuggets that people walk away and take away to improve their lives. You can go over to my website at www.debrakazowski.com and you can get your three-part mini course on making habits stick so you can build consistency and focus on some of your goals and dreams and build in those routines so they become automatic. As Muhammad Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And from Ra and myself, go out and make today great.